Hello, my name is Fernando Bordin and I am an assistant professor in international law at the University of Cambridge. The topic of this lecture is the applicability of general international law to international organizations. In other words, on what basis it can be said that the default rules that we find in customary international law, general principles of law, apply also to those organizations. And just to be 100% clear, when I speak of international organizations, I'm speaking of intergovernmental institutions with a separate legal personality, such as the United Nations, the Amer Organization of American States, the African Union, the European Union, and so many others. And I will be sometimes refer to international organizations by the acronym IOs, as many of my colleagues do, and I hope that that won't be confusing for you. So, is general international law applicable to international organizations. The mainstream position that you find in textbooks and other relevant volumes is that, yes, the default rules of custom and general principles apply also to IOs. And there is even a precedent from the International Courts of Justice that seems to support that view. The advisory opinion that the courts gave to the World Health Organization back in 1980, where the court said, and I quote, that international organizations are subjects of international law and as such are bound by any obligations incumbent upon them under general rules of international law. And the same assumption is implicit in the work of the United Nations International Law Commission, the body of experts that the General Assembly has established to contribute to the codification and progressive development of international law. The ILC has carried out two very important projects in the field of international organizations. The first of those dates back to the 1970s, when the Commission drafted the text that was eventually adopted with only some minor changes as the 1986 Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties involving international organizations. And then the second was carried out from 2003 to 2011 and culminated with the adoption of a set of articles on the responsibility of international organizations for internationally wrongful acts, which are known for the acronym ARIO. Now, in those two projects, the ILC extended to international organizations most of the provisions on the law of treaties and on the law of state responsibility that had been codified in the 1969 Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties and in the 2001 Articles on State Responsibility. So, if you compare the two Vienna Conventions, you will see that they are almost identical. And if you put the Articles on State Responsibility with the ARIO side by side, you will find a great degree of overlap in them as well. And the picture that emerges is one in which states and IOs are largely placed under the same rules of general international law. But the thing is that neither mainstream academic commentary, nor the ICJ, or the ILC, have much to say about the grounds for applying rules of general international law to IOs. In the codification of the law of treaties, the ILC speaks of a consensuality approach, the idea being that a common regime applies to any entity that happens to conclude a treaty. But the Commission sort of leaves the matter at that. 
Fast forwarding to the codification of the law of responsibility, there the Commission denies that it is adopting some sort of general presumption that the same principles apply to states and international organizations. The Commission says rather that the decision to extend rules from one category to the other category, that decision must be always based on appropriate reasons. But then, if you take a look at the commentary to discrete provisions in the ARIO, the Commission normally points out that there is no reason to distinguish between the two categories of legal subjects without offering much context or much explanation of why there is no reason to distinguish between them. So what might then be the grounds for extending to international organizations the rules of general international law that apply to states? We can start our work together by considering two contrasting possible approaches to the question. One approach would be to postulate that the structural rule that makes custom applicable to states now also includes international organizations. In other words, international organizations can be read into international law's rule of recognition, to use the phrase coined by the legal philosopher H.L.A. Hart. And the opposite approach, the second of the two, would be to say that the rule of recognition of international law has not changed at all, so that, in principle, the customary rules and general principles that emerged to regulate the conduct of states apply to states only. And if that is the case, to show that a specific rule applies to international organizations, we would need to offer independent proof, independent proof of practice, of opinion juris, that the scope of application of that rule has indeed been extended so that it now covers international organizations. But both of those two approaches, they pose some difficulties. The problem with the first approach is that it may be quite difficult to show that the rule of recognition of international law has changed so as to include now international organizations as well. Because where does one find evidence that states accept a new structural rule with that particular content? Unless states come and tell us more about what they think, or unless we have some very clear judicial precedent in that connection, that can be very hard to establish. And states do not seem particularly keen to express views on the legal status of IOs or tell us what they think IOs are. And if we turn to the second approach, that one poses even more serious problems. Because if we need to offer a specific proof that each and every rule of general international law being invoked applies to IOs, the upshot will be that very few rules will be found. And does that mean that somehow general international law does not care about those organizations, that those organizations enjoy a lot of freedom to act as they please, that they are much freer to do whatever they want than states are? I would like then to present for your consideration a third approach, which I think provides a more fruitful way of thinking about the applicability of general international law to international organizations. Instead 
of making strong claims about what the rule of recognition of international law says or what the rule of recognition doesn't say, the suggestion is to treat this question as a situation of uncertainty in the law, a gap or a lacuna that needs to be filled by recourse to legal reasoning. And the key to filling this gap, I suggest, is to ask ourselves whether the rules that apply to states can be extended to international organizations by analogy. So let me unpack this claim a little bit. You see, when we think about how the international legal system that we know today came together in the past couple of centuries, in the beginning there were the states. States and only states were the subjects of international law. But over time, international organizations joined the scene, befuddling international lawyers who started to scratch their heads and ask themselves, what are those entities and how does international law apply to them? And the emergence of IOs in the international scene created a massive gap in the system, more like a crater, we could say. International lawyers had, understandably, focused on the rules that applied to states. Those were the rules that international law used to be about. But what about these new things, the international organizations? What kind of rules apply to them on the international plane? Now, when lawyers encounter a gap in the law, they typically resort to forms of systemic reasoning, especially reasoning by principle and reasoning by analogy. They look at the existing valid rules of the system and ask themselves whether any of those rules can be extended so that the gap that they found can be filled in a coherent way. A little caveat here is that much can be said about the nature and the structure and the limitations of those forms of reasoning, reasoning by principle, reasoning by analogy. But the main explanation for why reasoning by principle and reasoning by analogy, systemic forms of reasoning, are viewed as authoritative lies in the commitment that legal systems embody to treat like cases alike. That is what justifies extending an existing rule to a similar situation to which no specific rule has yet been proposed. And that way of reasoning, it is anchored in the regulative idea of the rule of law that will be familiar to many of you. A regulative idea that demands that in a situation of uncertainty, we strive to find the answer that fits best with the legal system that we have, that we look for the most consistent and the most coherent solution from all of those available. Now, if we turn back to the gap or the crater that the emergence of international organizations has left in our international legal system. The question that arises is whether the default rules that apply to states can be extended to IOs by analogy. And the answer, of course, depends on whether international organizations can be meaningfully compared with the states for which the rules have been originally devised. So let's pour over this question. Are states and international organizations analogous? Can they be meaningfully compared? And from the get-go, 
we can think of several differences between states and international organizations. States are entities comprising a territory and a population, while international organizations are basically, essentially, bureaucracies. States are political communities of human beings that pursue the good life and the common good in different ways, whereas IOs, they are created to do all sorts of things, from enabling military alliances to setting technical standards to pursuing economic relations to protecting the environment. You name it, there are so very many things that IOs can be set up to do. Therefore, from many angles, states and international organizations look very, very different indeed. But the question for us here is not whether states and international organizations are similar in general. That would be a bit of an unproductive question to ask. The question is rather whether it is possible to compare the two categories for the specific purpose of identifying the default rules that apply to those organizations that apply to those organizations when they operate on the international plane. So, in other words, are states and I.O. similar when we look at them as subjects of international law operating on the international plane? Might there be a relevant similarity between the two categories that invites us to extend to I.O.s the rules that apply to states? Let's try to tackle those questions then. A potential starting point is a notion of international legal personality. That is a very well-known concept which textbooks typically use to explain the status of international organizations under international law. But it's important to bear in mind that the concept of legal personality is, at the end of the day, a formal concept. Because when we say that an entity has legal personality, what we are saying is that that entity can be, or is, an addressee of rights and duties and capacities under a legal system, or in other words, a focal point for the application of legal norms. But what calling an entity a legal person does not tell us is what specific rights, obligations, and capacities that entity has under the legal system in question. Let me illustrate this with what, an example that I hope will be familiar for all of you. You may have come across a proposition, which I personally find persuasive, that individuals are subjects of international law because they are capable of bearing rights under the international law of human rights and also capable of bearing obligations under international criminal law. So, just like states, individuals can be said to possess international legal personality. But that doesn't make individuals analogous to states, does it? Because individuals do not have the general capacity to operate on the international plane. They cannot bring, as a general matter, international claims. They cannot conclude treaties or do any of those things. They only have the capacity to act on the international plane when that capacity is specifically provided to them. Turning back to international organizations, our main actors for the present lecture, 
It is therefore necessary for us to look into the specific type of international legal personality that IOs enjoy under international law and to ask ourselves to what extent that specific type of personality is comparable with the personality of states. And to do that, we can turn to a couple of attributes that international organizations display as subjects of international law. The first relevant attribute is that, like states, international organizations have the legal capacity to operate on the international plane. That is a point that the International Court made in its opinion on reparation for injuries, when the court confirms that, that the UN has the capacity to bring an international claim on the international plane against a non-member state. And the second relevant relevant attributes that can help us in the comparison is that, like states, international organizations enjoy exclusive jurisdiction over their own internal affairs. What does that mean? It means that they are not, without more, subjected to the domestic jurisdiction of any other member states or, indeed, to the domestic jurisdiction of any other entity under international law. Of course, we all know that member states boss international organizations around, and I mean no disrespect by saying that. At the end of the day, member states are running the international organization. They have a key role in deciding what the organization does. But when they run the international organization, they do that by sitting in political organs that follow predefined procedures under the rules of the organization that will result in decisions about what the organization is to do. What member states do not do is to exercise public power over international organizations in their capacity as individual states. They do not extend their domestic law to international organizations so as to tell what those organizations want to do. So, on the one hand, we have this notion that international organizations like states enjoy the capacity to operate on the international plane. And on the other hand, we have this notion that, like states, international organizations exercise exclusive jurisdiction over their own internal affairs. And as a result of those two attributes, it can be said that IOs, just like states, possess legal autonomy when they operate on the international plane. And that legal autonomy will be the key for the comparison that we make between the two categories. In their own ways, both states and IOs are self-governing entities in the eye of public international law, legally autonomous entities in the eye of public international law. Let me, of course, make a little disclaimer. I'm not suggesting here that international organizations are sovereign. It is often said and emphasized that while states are sovereign, IOs are not. And that is fair enough. There is very little to be gained in trying to extend to IOs a concept that comes with so much historical, political, philosophical, and legal baggage. But even if IOs are not sovereign, they still do share 
with states this attribute of legal autonomy, at least on the international plane. And that is what makes the two categories comparable as subjects of international law. Okay, but when we draw an analogy, it is not sufficient to point to a similarity between the cases that we are comparing. We must also explain why that similarity is the relevant similarity. And we have to do that by offering appropriate normative reasons. In other words, by offering a substantive justification for the comparison, for why we are electing that similarity and not other similarities to draw the analogy. What would then be the normative reasons that explain why subjects enjoying legal autonomy on the international plane should be subjected to a similar legal regime? The strongest argument, I happen to think, is that when states act collectively on the international plane through a separate entity, that entity must remain bound by the, by the default rules that would otherwise have applied to the states individually. Why? Let me illustrate this with one example. We have 27 European states deciding to act collectively in very many fields of international cooperation through an international organization, the, the European Union, the EU. The EU maintains extensive external relations with other states and even with other international organizations. Now, if in maintaining those external relations, the EU were not bound by the same default rules that bind European states, international law would be essentially allowing those European states to circumvent, to contract out other obligations owed to other states, owed to third parties, owed to international other international organizations, simply by the fact of setting up some corporate entity to go act on their behalf. And you can pause and think about what the implications would be of accepting that possibility that states can essentially contract out of all the default rules that we find in custom and general principles by acting through NIO and have the wider world deal with it. Say that a group of states want to disregard the immunity of other states. What would the solution be? Just go and create an international organization like the EU and tell the international organization to exercise jurisdiction over everybody else. Or say that a group of states want to use military force without being bound by the prohibition on the use of force. Or maybe they want to intervene in the internal affairs of a state. Or maybe they want to violate the rules of international humanitarian law. What would the solution be? Just set up an international organization like NATO and send it to start a war. Now, would that be acceptable? Would any state really go with that possibility? It is not hard to see how much disruption that possibility would bring to the international system if creating an IO would be such an easy way to contract out of the default rules of general international law vis-à-vis -vis the wider world. And that is why the most coherent 
solution to our situation of uncertainty is to apply general international law to IOs, unless, of course, otherwise is provided. Say, we could have, of course, uh, some sort of lex specialis, a special regime that an international organization may agree with third parties, third states, other international organizations that will create some bespoke rules for their relationships. And that is completely and utterly permissible. But if that lex specialis does not exist, then the presumption should be that the general default rules that would otherwise have applied to the states individually will extend by analogy to the international organization. That is a solution that ensures that our legal system remain reasonably stable and reasonably coherent. So this is the basic case for an analogy between states and international organizations, an analogy that justifies extending rules from one category of legally autonomous subjects to the other category of legally autonomous subjects. And that is why this analogy offers a basis for applying the general rules of international law to IOs. But in assessing this proposition, one must consider potential objections and also a few caveats. And I propose to cover in the remainder of this lecture two of those potential objections and one of the applicable caveats. The first potential objection is that whereas states are the original or the primary subjects of international law with a general competence to act, IOs are merely derived subjects of international law possessing only special or limited functions and competencies. That notion is encapsulated by the so-called principle of speciality, which the International Court articulated in its decision not to give to the World Health Organization an advisory opinion on nuclear weapons back in 1996. And the principle of speciality does indeed point to important differences between states and international organizations. States are territorial political communities. Of course, we know that states have massive differences in size and politics and economic power, but still, they form a relatively or comparatively homogeneous category in that they are all pursuing some version of the common good for their populations, and they normally do that through their domestic law and through their domestic politics, of course, when thing goes with the other. In contrast, international organizations are created to do all kinds of things. Some organizations have a broad mandate and lots of competencies, while others have a very narrow mandate and very few powers. Some organizations are outward-looking, they engage in relations with the outside world, while others are quite inward-looking. They do not really maintain relations with third parties. All the business that happens, happens with our member states under the rules of the organization itself. So there are some important differences between states and IOs that are captured by this principle of speciality. But does the principle of speciality make states and IOs not comparable when we look at them 
as legally autonomous entities on the international plane. The key here is in the viewpoint that we take. And I think that to tackle this question, it is useful for us to draw a distinction. A distinction between the international plane on the one hand and the institutional plane on the other hand. On the international plane, IOs maintain relations with non-member states, with other international organizations, and even with their own member states, but when those relations take place outside the constitutional framework of the organization. At the institutional plane, in contrast, the relations all happen under the internal law of the organization. The institutional plane is constituted by the internal rules of the organization, by which I mean the constituent instrument of the organization, the decisions of the organs of the organization under that constituent instrument, the practice of the organization as it evolves over time, and so on and so forth. And when we look at international organizations from the perspective of the institutional plane, when we look at international organizations from within, when that is our viewpoint, we see that each organization is indeed special. Each organization is indeed unique. Each organization has its own bespoke set of rules that govern the relations between different organs, the relations between organs and the member states, and even sometimes the relations between organs and the citizens of member states. And there, on the institutional plane, the principle of speciality reigns absolute, as it were. It is the key organizing or structuring principle, because it is the internal law of the organization that governs everything. And each organization is different from the other. Organizations do not look comparable to states. And when we are looking at the law that applies on the institutional plane, general international law, custom, general principles, it will only be applicable to the extent that the internal law of the organization so allows. But if we change our viewpoint and we look at international organizations from the perspective of the international plane, then the view that we get is a bit different. Because there, we see that IOs do indeed look much more similar, not only to one another, but also to states, because they all share that attribute of legal autonomy. The property of conducting their own business without being subjected to the jurisdiction of other entities. And as they do so, as they are minding their own business on the international plane as legally autonomous entities, they may trigger the application of customary rules and general principles, and the analogy becomes persuasive. Now, that doesn't mean that all rules of general international law will be relevant for all international organizations. Because some organizations do have very narrow mandates, and some organizations don't really engage much in relations with the wider world. And if they don't engage much in relations with the wider world, if they have a very narrow mandate, 
It may be that custom and general principles will have little, if any, practical relevance for their functioning. So, for example, if you think about the Universal Postal Union, the rules governing the use of force and the law of armed conflict will be of no relevance for the functioning of an organization that deals with, basically, mail and post. If you look at the Inter-American Development Bank, the rules of the law of the sea will be likely of no relevance whatsoever to the functioning of what is a bank that makes loans to states conducting development projects. But the point is that whenever an organization takes action on the international plane, which triggers the application of rules of general international law, then in those cases, rules of general international law can be extended to the organization by analogy. And that will be the case, for example, when an organization exercises extraterritorial jurisdiction or when an organization makes a claim against a third party triggering the application of the law of international responsibility or when, say, an organization concludes an international agreement triggering the application of the law of treaties. Those will be the situations in which rules of general international law will become relevant. So the principle of speciality here in practice may limit which rules are relevant to particular organizations. But, they do, but it does not change our position of principle that when we look at those organizations from the viewpoint of the international plane, they look alike and similar to states. So that was the speciality objection. Let's turn to a second potential objection that is worth discussing. And that objection goes that whereas states are unitary subjects of international law, IOs are layered subjects of international law. Why? That is because IOs are created by states, and they are run by states, which sit in their political organs. In other words, IOs are subjects of international law run by other subjects of international law. When we look at them, they have those layers of international actors, which is not the case with states, which sometimes are perceived or seen as some sort of billiard ball. And that could provide a reason against extending to IOs certain rules that apply to states under customary international law or even potentially we can speculate certain general principles. Let me give you an example of a rule of general international law that may not extend to international organizations by analogy on the ground that states are unitary subjects, whereas international organizations are layered subjects. The example comes from the law of state responsibility. The law of state responsibility is structured around what the ILC has called the principle of independent responsibility. The idea being that a state is only liable for its own conduct and not for the conduct of other states. With only by the way, a few principled objections, such as cases of complicity, control, or coercion that are not directly relevant for the point that we are discussing right now. 
Now, the question that arises is whether this principle of independent responsibility should be extended to international organizations so that it is only the organization and not the member states that run the organization that are liable for the organization's conduct when a claim against the organization is brought. And it could be argued that no, not necessarily. The principle of independent responsibility should not necessarily be applicable to IOs because in this particular respect, states and IOs, they are not like cases. They are rather different cases. States are unitary entities, while IOs are layered entities. So, if states use IOs to take collective action on the international plane, a principal solution under international law might be to suggest that states and organizations be jointly liable for that action. That is because of their differences. The principle of independent responsibility is not necessarily the solution that fits best within the international legal system when we look at some of those discontinuities between states and the organizations that they set up. But if you take a look at Article 62 of the ARIO, the Articles on the Responsibility of International Organizations, you'll see that what that provision does is precisely to extend to IOs that principle of independent responsibility. Because Article 62, it provides uh, that uh, member states are only liable for the acts of an organization if they have specifically accepted responsibility for those acts, or if they have led the injured party to rely on their assuming responsibility for the um, actions and omissions of the organization. So Article 62 establishes a presumption against member state liability. It does seem to extend that principle of independent responsibility to IOs. But what is interesting is that if you read the commentary that the ILC has drafted on Article 62, you will see that this was not a rule that the ILC extended to IOs on the grounds that there was no reason to distinguish between states and IOs. Rather, the ILC proposed Article 62 by referring to some previously existing practice, including, or in particular, the judgments of English courts in a string of cases that involved an organization that went bust, that went bankrupt, the International Teen Council. And quite crucially, Article 62 was supported by several states and IOs in the comments that they sent to the, international, uh, to the international Law Commission and also in the speeches that they made in the Sixth Committee of the UN General Assembly. And it was a rule that was completely crucial for this project, but which faced basically no pushback from the relevant stakeholders while the ILC was discussing it. Article 62 is therefore not based on an analogy between states and international organizations. It is not a solution that derives from systemic reasoning. Rather, it is based on that practice and that opinion juris as expressed during the codification process. And it seems to be the case here that states once to extend the principle of independent responsibility uh, to international organizations. And they want to do that because there are some policy reasons 
that militates in favor of that solution. Just to give you a quick example, the Institut de Droit International, the International Law Institute, it conducted a study on member state liability in the 1990s, a study that the ILC itself cites in the commentary to Article 62 of the ARIO. And in that study, the Institute referred to the independent functioning of IOs as a policy reason not to adopt a rule of member state liability. And the thinking here is that if member states were to be liable for the acts of their organizations, those states would have a massive incentive to intervene in the work of the organization and to do so at every possible step. Because it would be implied, implicated legally if claims are brought against the organization, they might really, really, really get very worried about what the organization is doing, how decisions are making, and as a result, collective activity or collective action would be hindered in ways that might be detrimental to what states want to achieve. So that is a reason why, uh, presumably, the rule in Article 62 has been uh, adopted. It's not about or based or inspired by an analogy between states and international organizations. Okay, I told you a little bit earlier that we would cover two potential objections to the analogy between states and international organizations, and that then that we would cover a caveat. We have gone through the two potential objections, the speciality objection and the objection that international organizations are layered subjects already. And now it's time for us to briefly turn to the caveat. The caveat that I wanted to present to you is that whenever we resort to systemic reasoning, reasoning by principle, reasoning by analogy, to fill a gap in the law, in our case here, the question of the applicability of custom and general principles to international organizations, the solution that we come to is somewhat provisional. It should not be taken as the last word on the matter. And that is because it is perfectly possible that through the formal and the informal lawmaking processes of the system, a different solution may emerge over time. A different solution that points to a direction that diverges from the direction that systemic reasoning, analogy, for example, had pointed. So, it may well be the case that a starting point, a plausible starting point, is that states and IOs enjoy legal autonomy on the international plane, and therefore that justifies extending rules from one category to the other. But if over time international practice comes to adopt bespoke rules for IOs, rules that cater to the particular features of IOs as a category of legal subjects, or even to the particular features or certain subcategories of IOs, specialized IOs, then we can expect customary international law applying to those organizations to start diverging from the customary international law that applies to states. The default rules can become different. I'll give you just one example that illustrates that possibility. During the 
codification of the law of the responsibility of international organizations, the EU proposed to the ILC a special rule on attribution of conduct, a special rule that should apply to a particular category of regional economic integration organizations. Organizations here pursuing those closer forms of cooperation, including the creation of single markets and other similar things. And the EU's argument was that because those organizations, those regional economic integration organizations, maintain very close relations with the member states, in the context of a member implementing a decision of the organization should be attributable to the organization only and not to the member states doing the implementing, the member state acting to implement the decision of the organization. In other words, what the EU wanted was for the conduct of EU states under the law of international responsibility to be attributable to the EU alone. So, so the EU would be responsible exclusively for every conduct where EU law is implemented. But the ILC declined to adopt that special rule of attribution. And it declined to adopt that rule because it was not convinced that that rule was well established in international practice already. It looked at the materials and it thought, well, you know, we don't see that rule as having emerged in the practice of the relevant stakeholders and their opinion juries. But the Commission did recognize the possibility that, over time, a rule along those lines might well develop if practice and opinion juries start to build up around that rule. So, whenever we extend to international organizations the default rules that apply to states by analogy, we should see that exercise, that intellectual exercise, as our starting point and not necessarily as our finishing line, the only possible version of the law that applies to international organizations. We need to see how the solution derived by analogy will be received by the relevant stakeholders. We need to see whether international practice will embrace it. It may be sometimes that international practice may come to reject it. And it is on this note that we conclude. If you're interested in having, um, hearing a little bit more about some of the topics that were covered in this lecture, I can happily recommend you check out the lectures by Cristina Daugidas and by Guglielmo Verdurami. And uh, on that note, I would like to thank you very much for watching this lecture and I would like to wish you all the very best.